life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, welcome aboard. And let's start out with the usual, a couple of questions for you. What is chorophobia? Chorophobia, C-H-O-R-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. What is that? If you know the answer to that question, 514-790-800, you can also text to 514-800. And um, I have a question still left over from last week. What is common between Dragnet's Joe Friday, great TV show, and Babe Ruth? So we're looking for what is common between Dragnet's Joe Friday and Babe Ruth? I give you a clue there. We're looking for a number, a number. And also looking for what chorophobia is all about. Okay, I'm Joe Schwartz, and uh, I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society. And as you know, our mandate is to separate sense from nonsense to try to mystify, demystify science for you guys the public, that is, and make sure that you're up to date on what is happening in the world of science. So we invite your questions about any uh, scientific uh, issues, again, at 514-790-0800. And I also should remind you that uh, uh, our website is constantly being updated, and it has all kinds of interesting stuff, current stuff, uh, some historical stuff, pretty easy to navigate. And you just go to mcgill.ca slash OSS, mcgill.ca slash OSS. And uh, you can also go there to sign up for a free weekly newsletter, which will inform and uh, entertain you. All right, let's get started today by talking about garbage. Why garbage? Because uh, unfortunately, there is so much of it, uh, so much of it out there. And it's um, you know hard to know just what to do about it uh, at all, and uh, I, I'm kind of you know alerted to to this because uh, whenever I take out the garbage, you know I start thinking about um, you know what what this is really all about and where is all of this going to end up. You know we just uh, kind of uh, take it for granted, right? That uh, uh, we put the garbage out and it just uh, disappears. And uh, where where does it go? We put it into these plastic bags, we put it into the bin, and then it just uh, disappears somehow, somewhere. And the question is, you know, what, what happens to it? Well, all kinds of, of things can happen to that uh, uh, garbage. There's no universal uh, solution, uh, you know, to to this. Uh, but uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, how much we produce. In North America, uh, the average uh, person produces about four pounds of garbage per day. Four pounds of garbage per day. Now think about how much that is, you know, and and uh, uh, where it goes. Much of it, of course, ends up in landfills. 
And it's uh, interesting uh, that we know all about this. And a lot of that is due to Dr. Bill Radji, um, who's uh, an archaeologist, but he's uh, sort of converted to another practice called garbology because uh, he was uh, excavating uh, uh, waste disposal sites and uh, you know landfills to see you know what uh, what was going on in there and, and what you could you could find and uh, so you know it's it's not a pleasant thought uh, <laughs> about all the things that that you find anyway so dr Ratchi started out as an archaeologist but over the year he became uh, the world's leading garbage analyst and uh, probably the world's first garbologist. So I said we produce about four pounds of garbage per day. Most of this ends up in landfills. But uh, Dr. Ratchi spent a lot of time digging through garbage and landfills to see just what is there. Well, fast food packaging, I think to most people's surprise, made up only 0.25%, that is one quarter percent of the garbage by volume and disposable diapers only about one percent overall paper and cardboard made up more than 50 percent of the waste whereas food waste made up only about one percent now that's a, a concerning statistic because paper and cardboard of course should not go into the garbage they should go into the recycling bin so when we're talking about uh, you know 50 percent of the waste being made up of paper and cardboard uh that's that's really scary because this is something that could easily be cut out just by putting it in the uh, recycling uh, bin uh Raji found that a great deal of the garbage remains intact and there isn't much biodegradation in the landfill for example he and his crew could still read newspapers that were 50 years old being an experienced garbologist dr Raji says he can probably figure out a person's socioeconomic class based on their garbage. Lower income people throw away a lot of car maintenance items like motor oil and batteries. Middle income people throw away things like paint, stains, varnishes, and other home fix-it items. Upper income people throw away mostly yard waste like pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers. And another finding from Ratchi shows that ironically, poorer people pay more for food than richer people. This is because poor people buy things in smaller packages, since this is usually all they can afford to buy one time. Richer people, on the other hand, take more advantage of the cheaper bulk products. And uh, that, of course, has been a blessing for Costco. When Dr. Ratchi was asked what the smelliest thing was in his garbage dump expeditions, he answered, definitely raw, spoiled chicken. It's bad enough to make anyone want to turn and run. Where does the putrid smell characteristic of garbage come from anyway? Well, from the numerous compounds that form when proteins and fats decay. But landfills also release odorless methane gas and organic matter decomposes. This biogas can be collected and used as a source of energy to generate electricity, and it can also be burned as natural gas. Though it is not as effective a fuel as burning the waste directly, it could be a more environmentally friendly way of generating energy while diminishing the use of coal and keeping waste levels down in landfills. To extract the gas, long pipes made of polyvinyl chloride are put into the landfill pile 
and attached to pumps at the surface of the pile. These pumps suck up the gas and filter it. It's important not to allow any oxygen to mix with the methane gas because that could trigger an explosion. And biogas is already being exploited as a source of energy in landfills through Germany, the US, and right here in Canada. So garbage can produce more than smells. But really, we should be emphasizing reducing garbage, uh, especially when it comes to packaging. Uh, Overpackaging of of, uh, of products is, is epidemic. And uh, uh, plastic wrapped in plastic, wrapped in, you know, with uh, aluminum. And uh, it's way, way, way overdone. Uh, when I take a look at uh, the garbage that I, I throw out, I must say sometimes it's you know quite concerning to see how much uh, packaging remnants there are uh, there are in there. I think we we have to give more more attention to to garbage and and just try to uh, cut uh, down on it. Although I, one thing that I should add is is that. Um, Landfills are often castigated as, as sort of, of, of being uh, you know, uh, an example of environmental negligence. This is not necessarily correct because these days, landfills are designed by engineers uh, to make sure that nothing gets out. And actually in Canada, one thing we do not have a shortage of is land. So we can construct uh, uh, landfills and we can design them in such a way that nothing leaches uh, out from them and modern landfills are constructed like that. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, we are uh, we are back, and uh, we try to keep you abreast of all discoveries in the world of science. And there was an interesting meeting, the Sexual Medicine Society of North America, where uh, a revelation was made, and it is about uh, that particular part of the female anatomy, uh, the clitoris. And uh, the often-cited claim that there are more than 8,000 nerve endings in that particular little piece of anatomy now turns out to be incorrect. Uh, (laughs) Interesting enough, it turns out that that original number of 8,000 nerve endings in the clitoris came from a study of cows. Now, I'm not sure exactly how one studies that particular uh, anatomical feature in in uh, cows, but uh, actually they they did that. But now the new revelation is that there are in fact an average of ten thousand two hundred and eighty nerve fibers, and uh, this was in a paper presented by Dr. Blair Peters of Oregon Health Science University, and I haven't yet looked up the the paper to see exactly how he came to this uh, conclusion how he was able to count the nerve endings, but I suspect uh, it is uh, an interesting uh, paper. So I will indeed look uh, look into that. Okay, uh, 
the uh, question that I asked, uh, I, I although I think I, I spelled it out, uh, uh, I'm getting answers that don't refer to the, the question. The question I asked was chorophobia. What is it? C-H-O-R-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. And I got an answer to coprophobia, which is, of course, interesting. Coprophobia is the fear of feces, but that's not what I was uh, what I was asking about. And then I'm still asking about the number that connects Dragon's Joe Friday and uh, and Babe Ruth. Okay, let me uh, also uh, talk about something else that I I always find uh, interesting, and uh, that is the the story of Typhoid Mary. It's an often often told story, although uh, it uh, very often isn't appreciated by by people. So let me tell you, Mary Malone, she made the most delicious ice cream. There was only one little problem with it. It could kill you. And that's because Mary carried more than the ingredients needed for ice cream. She carried the Salmonella typhi bacterium, and that's the bacterium that causes typhoid fever. And she was well-deserving of the name that was bestowed upon her, Typhoid Mary. Today, typhoid fever is rare in North America, but it still strikes some 12 million people in the developing world every year. Vaccinations are available and are a must for anyone traveling into areas where the disease is still found. Risk is reduced by drinking only bottled water, eating foods that have been thoroughly cooked and are still hot, and avoiding raw vegetables and fruits that cannot be peeled. The typhoid bacteria which live only in humans, can spread through sewage or through food that has been handled by someone shedding bacteria. A high fever can ensue, and even death, if antibiotics are not available. Before widespread water purification, epidemics of typhoid fever were common, but nobody really knew how the disease was transmitted, at least not until 1906, when 10 people in the same household in Long Island, New York, suddenly came down with typhoid fever. Health authorities sent Dr. George Soper to investigate. Soper had experience with bacteria and knew that Salmonella typhi had been cultured from the stool of typhoid patients as early as 1884. He suspected that the disease could be passed from person to person and asked if there had been any visitors to the house. Yes, he was told, a new Irish cook had recently been hired but was no longer there. Dr. Soper then traced Mary Malone through an employment agency and discovered that there had been at least one case of typhoid everywhere she had worked. Finally, he caught up with her in a Park Avenue apartment where the owner's daughter had already died of typhoid and two servants suffered from it. When he explained to her that she was spreading the disease, Mary attacked him with a cleaver. The police were called and Mary was taken away screaming, kicking, and biting. Health officials found live bacteria in her stool, demonstrating for the first time that typhoid fever could be passed by people who carried the bacterium but were themselves immune to the disease. Mary was forcibly isolated in Riverside Hospital for three years and was finally released when she agreed to never cook for others and report in every three months. She then disappeared, only to resurface five years later 
at another New York hospital where she had been hired as, guess what, a cook. 25 nurses in the hospital were ill with typhoid. Mary was returned to Riverside Hospital where she was confined for the next 23 years, living in a cottage specially built for her. She finally died of a stroke with her funeral being attended by only nine people because of the fear of catching typhoid fever from a dead typhoid Mary. Interesting. We have Richard on the line, Richard. Okay, Richard hung up. Maybe Richard had an answer. Maybe he did not. Uh, but I did get a texted answer that is indeed correct to chorophobia. It is the fear of dancing. It is the fear of dancing. <clears throat> and uh, it is uh, uh, something, of course, from which Fred Astaire did not suffer. And uh, Fred Astaire, uh, that was not his real name, actually. Uh, his real name was Frederick Austerlitz. There's a little trivia question for you. Something else interesting about Fred Astaire, his feet were insured for $650,000. I guess that's what you do when you can dance up the wall and uh, dance upside down from the ceiling, right? Like in the classic movie. So now you know what... Uh, uh, chorophobia is, it is the irrational fear of dancing. What is the cure for it? Well, as I understand it, the cure is to take lessons in dancing. And when you get uh, individual instruction, you can overcome the fear. I did get a number, uh, the answer to my number question about uh, uh, Joe Friday in Dragnet and Babe Ruth. <clears throat> And we can always rely on James to come up with an answer. Yes, the number is 714. Uh, and of course, that's the number of home runs that Babe Ruth hit. And it was also the badge number on uh, for Joe Friday. And uh, it is interesting that uh, uh, James would have noticed that because Indeed, you only see that number 714 on the badge for a very short time at the beginning of the, um, of the show. Uh, and James is asking a question. What is the connection of this trivia to the TV show, The O.C.? Uh, I'm not sure what O.C. is. Orange County? Uh, if the OC, because there was a TV show called The Orange County, and The Orange County had the telephone exchange 714. So if that's what James was referring to, I, I, that would be my answer, that the uh, telephone exchange for Orange County was uh, 714. <clears throat> okay, now given that we had that uh, question answered, uh, let me pose another question. From what medical condition did Howard Hughes suffer? Howard Hughes, well-known, of course, for his uh, enterprises in the aircraft industry. He was a pilot. Uh, he made a, a, a fortune uh, through various uh, companies that he, he started. But uh, Howard Hughes suffered from a medical condition, and uh, it basically took over his life. And the question is, what was that medical condition? <clears throat> And I guess I owe you a second question because we had the one about chorophobia answered and the one about uh, Dragnet and Joe Friday answered. 
Um, all right, so let's uh, let's try this one. Why are raw cashews always steamed or roasted before being sold? Okay, why why can you not buy uh, raw cashews that have not been treated in any way? When you buy raw cashews, they're always steamed or roasted, and the question is why. <clears throat> All right, so uh, you have some time to check up on those uh, answers because we're going to see what is going on in the world. We're going to check in with CTV News. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxide. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. All right, we are back, and I think we have Nancy on the line. Nancy? Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. So he was a germaphobe, wasn't he? He was Howard a germaphobe, Hughes? and what what is the name of the disease that he was suffering from? Germophobia? Mm, no, no. Okay. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but you're you're on the right track. You're on the okay. right track. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. So we're still looking for the medical condition from which uh, Howard Hughes suffered. If you know, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. Now we come to what, again, I think is an interesting story. Let's go. Noah was the founder of indigestion. He forgot to leave the pigs ashore. Right? Of course, pigs were on the ark, supposedly, because they survived, right? Anyway, that rather ingenious remark was printed in large letters atop a newspaper ad and was sure to catch a consumer's eye. The date was in the late 1800s. Well, reading further along in the ad, the reader would learn, quote, lard soaked food is not fit for human stomachs because lard is made from greasy, indigestible hog fat and is bound sooner or later to make trouble for your inner machinery. Specifically, the ad was for cotyledon the first mass-produced and mass-marketed alternative to lard. Why would an alternative to lard have consumer appeal? In the 19th century, the health food movement was beginning to emerge in America, with faddists such as Sylvester Graham and Dr. John Harvey Kellogg claiming that indigestion, or dyspepsia as they usually called it, was a national curse caused by eating meat and refined grains. What was the cure? A diet of vegetables and whole grains. Lard, the main shortening and cooking fat at the time, was often viciously attacked, a fact noted by Nathaniel Kellogg Fairbanks, whose Chicago company manufactured soap from fat obtained from slaughterhouses. Fairbanks saw an opportunity to produce an alternative to lard from a non-animal source. <clears throat> Olive oil had been known since ancient times, but was expensive, and of course, it was a liquid. But there was another plant-based oil around, although it did not have a stellar reputation. That was cottonseed oil, produced from the seeds of the cotton bowl, and uh, of course, uh, these seeds were plentiful due to the large cotton industry in the southern U.S. 
The oil was used in lamps for illumination and was a cheaper alternative to whale oil or lard. It was also secretly used to extend lard, an illegal activity that was uncovered when an American meatpacking and food processing firm, Armour & Company, realized it had purchased more lard than could have been produced by the existing hog population. By the late 1800s, cottonseed oil was being legally added to lard, but the product had to be sold as lard compound. It was a good substitute for lard, but still, it was mostly lard. What if the cottonseed oil were mixed instead with beef fat, Fairbanks wondered. After all, the Chicago slaughterhouses produced plenty of this waste product, and cottonseed oil could be purchased cheaply. Fairbanks chemist James Boyce found that just 10% beef sweat added to cottonseed oil resulted in a solid product that resembled lard, both in appearance and in function. Now the ads quickly began to roll out. Quote, the moment you put lard cooked food in your stomach, you are sending out a pressing invitation for dyspepsia to call upon you. Another one, cotyledon shortens your food, lengthens your life. Well, that was at least half correct. Cotyledon did act as a shortening. A short dough, like a pie crust, is crumbly and flaky, while pizza dough is stretchy and is said to be long. The texture depends on the strength of a matrix created when molecules of gluten, that's a type of protein in flour, are linked together, uh, and that happens when you knead the dough with water. If you add some fat, then fat molecules interfere with the formation of the gluten matrix, and that results in shortened strands of gluten and flakier texture. While cotton lean did shorten food, the claim about lengthening life had no basis. Cotton Lee's own life was shortened, but a competitor entered the market in 1911. That was Procter & Gamble's Crisco, which hyped the fact that it contained no animal products at all. The name derived from crystallized cottonseed oil, with crystallized being a clever substitute for hardened, because that's what Crisco was. It was hardened cottonseed oil. The technology that Crisco used had been invented by French chemist Paul Sabatier, who discovered that compounds of carbon could be made to react with hydrogen under the influence of a metal catalyst. And this was a finding for which he received the 1912 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. German chemist Wilhelm Nor Norman applied this discovery to liquid oils and produced the first hydrogenated fats. Under the influence of a catalyst, the fats, the liquid fats, reacted with hydrogen, they absorbed the hydrogen, and became solid. In 1909, Procter & Gamble acquired the rights to Norman's patent, and they went on to saturate cottonseed oil with hydrogen, converting it into a hard fat that was advertised as a vegetable alternative to lard. A curious claim, since cotton, of course, isn't really a vegetable. But the main thrust of the advertising was that Crisco was more digestible than lard, catering to the worry that American digestive systems were being destroyed by lard. Nine out of 10 doctors say it's digestible, 
So when the ad, well, of course it is. All fats are digestible. I don't know about that 10th doctor who seemed to believe that uh, fats were indigestible. Uh, I would stay away from him. But in any case, the digestible claim is meaningless. All fats are digestible. But sales did take off because Crisco had a high smoke point for frying and because it contained no lard. In 1906, Upton Sinclair had published his classic book, The Jungle, in which he castigated the meat industry by pointing out the horrible conditions in the meatpacking world. And this pushed people away from meat. Now, furthermore, the absence of lard was particularly important for observant Jews, who, of course, avoid pork and do not mix meat and dairy at the same meal. Since Chris neither meat nor dairy, it was parev, meaning it could be consumed with milk or meat. And that, of course, was very appealing. In a recipe book published by Crisco, and this was over 100 years ago, Rabbi Moses Margulies of New York is quoted as saying, the Hebrew race had been waiting 4,000 years for Crisco. Well, I don't know who that rabbi was. I don't know if he actually said that. I thought it was the Messiah that uh, we were waiting for for over 4,000 years. I didn't think it was Crisco. Uh, Crisco, of course, is still around today as a shortening, but it is no longer made from uh, saturated uh, cottonseed oil because the process of hydrogenation uh, turned out to have uh, sort of a, a, a bad side to it in the sense that it led to the production of trans fats. And those, of course, have become uh, boogeyman. So these days, uh, Crisco is made by blending together soybean oil and palm oil, and uh, there's no trans fat to worry about. So anyway, that's the story of uh, hydrogenation and, and Crisco, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure about uh, Jews having waited for Crisco for 4,000 years. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, I think we have Lisa on the line. Yes. Hi. Lisa? Lisa? Yes, hello? Yes, go ahead. Yes, hi. I believe it's OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. He was yes, suffering. exactly, exactly. Okay. <laughs> uh, Howard Hughes was quite an interesting character. Uh, he suffered, as you said, from OCD, and he always ate the same thing for dinner. It was a New York strip steak. It had to be medium rare with a salad and peas, but only small peas. Larger peas were not acceptable. And for breakfast, he wanted his eggs cooked the way his family cook Lily made them. He had a phobia about germs, of course, and uh, his passion for secrecy became a mania. In 1958, Hughes told his aides that he wanted to screen some movies at a film studio near his home, and he stayed in the studio's darkened screening room for 
four months never leaving. He ate only chocolate bars and chicken and drank only milk and was surrounded by dozens of boxes of Kleenex that he continuously stacked and rearranged. He wrote detailed memos to his aides, giving them explicit instructions neither to look at him nor speak to him unless spoken to. And throughout this period, Hugh sat fixated in his chair, often without any clothes on, continuously watching movies. Uh, he finally emerged in the summer of 1958. Uh, hygiene, of course, was terrible. He had neither bathed nor cut his hair and nails for weeks. And this is a guy who had been trained as an engineer. He was a pilot. He um, built the Spruce Goose, the largest uh, wooden airplane ever built. Uh, he was remarkable, but just goes to show you that everyone can be struck down by uh, by OCD. So you're quite correct. Uh, that's the condition from which Howard Hughes suffered. Uh, today, uh, it is uh, treatable often with medications, although it cannot be cured. And uh, there are many uh, very interesting features of OCD, but of course, disturbing to people who suffer from it. From it. All kinds of, of facets, for example, people who when driving in a car uh, cannot uh, avoid counting telephone poles. They must count the telephone poles that they, they pass. Uh, or they have to make sure a set number of times that they have uh, shut the, the um, uh, kitchen range in their house before going out even though, of course, they know that they have done that, but they have to go back X number of times to make sure that the stove is, is off. Uh, there are other uh, things associated with OCD, uh, hoarding, that is collecting uh, stuff, even when you know that you will never get around to using, using it, uh, or, you know, obsessions about... Uh, books on a shelf having to be in a certain order, either from small to large or large to small, etc. It is a very interesting condition, except, of course, for those who are suffering uh, from it. <clears throat> I think we also have Diane on the line. Diane? Diane? Okay, I think Diane probably had the same answer. She's not on the line. But I do have a text question about sodium aluminum phosphate whether or not it poses any uh, risk to the health because it, in so, it is in so many foods. <clears throat> well, actually, it is not in all that many foods. You're very likely uh, to find it in um, baking powder. And now ba baking powder, of course, is based on, on um, uh, releasing carbon dioxide in order to cause leavening. And uh, the carbon dioxide can be generated in many different ways. But the basic idea is to have sodium bicarbonate, which will react with an acid. And when it reacts with an acid, it releases carbon dioxide gas. <clears throat> so the question is, what kind of acid? Well, sodium aluminum phosphate, although it doesn't sound like it, is actually an acidic substance. And uh, when moistened, it will react with uh, sodium bicarbonate in the baking soda to release carbon dioxide gas. That's how it causes the leavening. <clears throat> you will... Also, sometimes find it in processed cheese because it can act as an emulsifier and makes the cheese smoother. Now, the reason that uh, people ask questions about the safety of this is, of course, because 
all three of its components, sodium, aluminum, and phosphate, have some issues when you are exposed to them in significant amounts. <clears throat> sodium, of course, is linked with uh, high blood pressure. Uh, aluminum uh, is uh, linked with uh, Alzheimer's disease, although I'll, I'll address that in a moment. And excessive intake of phosphates uh, is a concern for anyone who's suffering from kidney problems. So therefore, it seems like sodium aluminum phosphate may be a problem. <clears throat> However, uh, as we know, only the dose makes the poison, and the amount of this chemical to which you are normally exposed is very little. Uh, the amount of sodium is, is insignificant in the context of the overall diet. Now, as far as the aluminum goes, at one time there was a concern about aluminum being linked to Alzheimer's disease because it was found in these deposits, the, the uh, characteristic deposits in Alzheimer's disease, these uh, deposits of a protein called amyloid, and uh, that had aluminum embedded in it. But as it turns out, aluminum is a consequence of the disease, not a cause of it. That is, it is the disease brain, the, the, uh, the fact that uh, these uh, deposits of amyloid protein can trap aluminum. That's why you find it there. But the aluminum is not causing those deposits. Now, as far as the phosphate goes, that is indeed a concern for people who have kidney problems. But again, the amount of sodium aluminum phosphate that one would consume is very little. You don't need much of it in leavening agents, and uh, there is not a whole lot of it in, in processed cheese either. So I don't think that there really is a, an issue uh, with it. Okay, I think we have Kenny on the line. Kenny. Yes, what's, uh, what's the question? Yeah, which question? The second question. Which was? I forget uh, what it was. Uh, can you repeat it? It was about the raw cashews. Raw cashews. Uh, is it made it from, uh, from the uh, ground or, or the seeds or, or something? No, the question was, why are raw cashews always steamed or roasted before being sold? Or did they, they're distributed from the, uh, from the factory or on the uh, barrel, right? No, 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 no. There's a we're looking for a, what turns out to be a rather interesting chemical uh, reason. All right, Dr. Joe, you have a good day. Okay, thank you. Nice okay. to see you. All right, so uh, still looking for the question uh, about uh, the issue with cashews. When you go and buy these nuts, uh, they will always say that they are either steamed or roasted. They are never just uh, totally raw. And the question is why? <clears throat> well, you know what? I think we're running out of time here. So maybe I'll, I'll just answer that, that question. Uh, cashews actually contain a compound called urushiol, which you may have heard about because that is the agent that is found in poison ivy that is responsible for what poison ivy does. And eating raw cashews can cause a very severe rash in people who are sensitive to urushiol particularly if they have previously had a reaction to poison ivy uh, that took a long time to resolve. The skin of mangoes also has a ruchiol and can cause a reaction, so these fruits should be well washed before consuming. Now, as far as the cashews go, the reason that they are steamed uh, or roasted is because the heat will destroy the, uh, the urushiol. So therefore, you are not going to get a poison ivy reaction from eating cashews. <clears throat> and uh, uh, cashews are, are actually nutritious. Uh, they have a good fat profile. 
and uh, they also are pretty rich in, in protein. And of course, they taste pretty good. Okay, that's it for today. We have run out of time. Let me counsel you once more to always check out our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS. And if you want to sign up for my uh, weekly short little three-minute videos about interesting topics in, in science, uh, just uh, drop me an email. I'll put you on the list. My email is joel.schwartz, that's S-C-H-W-A-R-C-Z, at mcgill.ca, and I'll get you on that list. And of course, we will meet again.